Thanks. So today's passage is Acts 19, 23 to 20, verse 1. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk acquired the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After that war ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Thanks, David. All right, friends. Well, we get to review for just a minute, and then I'm going to talk through this text, and then we have some things to say about riots and how to start them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I parked right in front of the church today so I could get out and leave before <laughs> you get me. Paul's been in Ephesus. He's sitting in the city. Um, he's guided an existing church there. He showed up, found a church that was already there, and then he introduced them to the Holy Spirit, and they were confirmed in their faith. He spends two years in Ephesus doing his work, teaching, training, talking to them about what it means to be Christian. And then last week, we got to Toby's sermon, which is lovely. You should listen to it online if you have a chance. And there's a series of power encounters between the name of Jesus and certain demonic powers. The fame of Jesus on account of this begins to spread widely. And the citizens, in response, fork over a quantity of magic scrolls worth millions of pounds in today's money. And they burn them. Okay? So there's this bonfire of magic scrolls. In other words, the gospel in Ephesus is having an economic impact. Something's happened to the economics of this city, and all this sets us up for the passage that David just read in such a lovely way. So briefly, we meet in this passage a guy named Demetrius, a silversmith. This is his job. He's someone, clearly, who makes, among other things, silver images of Artemis. Now, Artemis is a big deal in Ephesus. 
Uh, the Ephesian Temple to Artemis was one of the seven classic wonders of the world. So it was a massive place. People went and, and pilgrimaged to visit Ephesus and see this. The Ephesian Artemis was known and worshipped in a unique way. There was a special cult of worship for Artemis in this place. If you don't know, Artemis was the twin sister to Apollo, the sun god. Uh, silver, color of the moon, gold, the color of the god. Uh, silver association with the moon is part of what's going on here. She's also goddess of the hunt. That's why Artemis has a bow. And also, of course, because you have to throw lots of things in there, she's also goddess of fertility. As a fertility image, I'm sorry to say, she is frequently depicted apparently with lots of breasts. Many, many breasts, which means more silver, which means more money for Demetrius and the silversmiths, doesn't it? Okay? So it's a lucrative business. Uh, let me try and put this in image for you here. If you've ever visited a tourist town, it is common to have tradesmen mastering in the sales of particular towny items. For example, little Eiffel Towers in Paris. Right? There's tradesmen all around who are selling little Eiffel Towers. And the Eiffel Tower to Paris is going to be a lot like the statue of Artemis to Ephesus. It's a distinct image that represents the city and the people well. And in this respect, Demetrius is kind of like the chief Eiffel Tower salesman of Ephesus. This is the way we can think about him. Now, we should know at this point that idol making is an economic industry. It's economics when you make an idol. Silver is a precious metal. Metalworking is a valuable trade. It is way too easy for us to separate what we think are economic motives from religious motives. We think these are two totally different worlds, but this can't be the case if you make idols for a living. It's deeply economic what you're doing. They're inseparable here. Now, in response to these events, Demetrius is able to get the crowd worked up. Let's look briefly at verses 25 through 27 of chapter 19 again. He gathered the craftsmen together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, I want you to observe that while Demetrius begins by talking about economics, he gets them hooked by talking about religion. He starts with their pocketbooks, and he shifts into their cultural worship, and this is how he moves them. Now, I want to make a really important side observation. Side observation. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. You've probably heard it said that most wars are started for religious reasons. I don't think so. Most wars are started for economic reasons, using religion to justify them. The Crusades, money. That's why they sacked Constantinople. They didn't even get to the East. They were like, hey, there's money here. Let's take it. It was just robbery, okay? World War II, money. Money and economics, Lebensraum, we need breathing room. We just want your land. It's money, but it's using religion in different ways to do these things. The Hundred Years' War after the Reformation, it's money. It's economics, using religion for these things. So anyway, let's stop those stupid lies. Okay, anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> we read the crowd is brought to a state of rage. It says in Greek they're filled with thumos. Thumos is this kind of spirit of anger, anger and breath, and one of the great Hebrew words for anger is your nostrils flare. Like, so apparently there's a real visual image for anger they had. But it's breathing, it's inside them, it's almost like a spirit of anger fills the group. The crowd is brought to the state of rage, they gather momentum, they move toward the theater. Now Ephesus, in addition to having a famous temple, also had a famous theater. It could seat 25,000 people. That's more than the population of St. Andrews. Okay? Chanting as one, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, it doesn't tell us how many people were there, but I want to imagine it full, okay? Let's just do this. The city is in an uproar. 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, this is what they chant together. They're filled with this rage. We read, curiously enough, that Paul is prohibited from speaking to the crowd. His companions won't allow it. Leadership in Asia won't allow it. Paul's not afraid of crowds, right? He's like, great, a preaching opportunity, let's go. And his friends are like, no, Paul, not this time. And it seems like they almost physically restrain him from going forward. So they recognize that something maybe is different here. And amazingly, Paul listens to them. Paul was not a great listener, I think, sometimes. Okay. Um, we read that this fellow Alexander, a Jew, attempts to make a defense, but they shut him down as well. Uh, this is another side note, but it's interesting. We don't know who this is. We really don't know who Alexander is. There are two other references to an Alexander in Ephesus in the New Testament, and I'll show them to you because they're fascinating. One of them is 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Um, By rejecting the sum of made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. This is one of the most weird verses in the Bible, and hence this guy Alexander. It's Timothy, he's in Ephesus, and this is the same, the same place. Are there more than one Alexanders in Ephesus? What did Alexander do? And then he shows up again in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Coppersmith? Silversmith? Is he one of the many tradesmen whom Demetrius has brought together here? It's just, there's a great mystery. Nobody knows, but it's fun, and there you go. Now you can wonder who's Alexander. Don't be like him, and don't get handed over to Satan by Paul. That's fine. (laughs) At the end, we read that an unnamed clerk stands up and successfully disperses the crowd, and then the riot is disbanded. So the question is, what can we learn from this story? Well, I've got four lessons for us today, four lessons from a riot. I am not sure these are very nice lessons, and I'm not sure that you will like me very much when I've told them to you. Uh, there's, uh, Jethro Tull has many epic songs. One of them is called Minstrel in the Gallery, and in the song, he stands before all the friends he's made, stands in the gallery, and promptly alienates them with his new music. And I kind of feel like that song has been in my head this past week. Uh, But I'm comforted by an image I had this morning, uh, which was of a wedge. Uh, Any of you ever split wood before? Some of you, like four or five. If you want to split some wood, I know you have. (laughs) People think you're hipster, but you're actually a lumberjack. All right, so. (laughs) If you want to split wood, one of the ways you do it is you get a metal wedge. You put it in the wood, and you use the back of your axe to hammer the wedge into place. And when the wedge is in place, the wood splits quite nicely and quite easily. The image is given to me this morning in this sense. I'm going to set a wedge this morning. And the prayer is, at the end of this, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to set the wedge. Now, if the wedge is from me, it's my stuff, then it's going to spin out and you're just going to get blessed by the Holy Spirit. Win-win. But if the wedge is from the Lord, get ready. Okay? He'll do his stuff. So lesson number one about idolatry is this, about riots is this. If you want to start a riot, strike an idol. If you want to start a riot, strike an idol. There's a great little movie called Canadian Bacon, made in 1995. And in that movie, America, a little frustrated by the end of the Cold War, decides to pick a row with Canada to keep things interesting. So the president sends his agent, John Candy, to Canada to try and make trouble. He ends up at a hockey match. And he's trying to fight, pick a fight with everyone. And so the Canadian national anthem is playing. He's like, oh, this anthem's boring. It sucks. And, he's, and no one listens to him. It is kind of boring. Anyway, they do this stuff, and they fight over it. 
And then he talks smack about hockey and Canadian hockey. Oh, you all are terrible. And he's citing old games and old things. And just no one pays any attention to him. And then finally, he takes a sip of beer, turns to his mate and says, I'll tell you what, this beer sucks. And everything stops. <laughs> the crowd gasps and goes, oh. The hockey players on the ice skid to a halt, freeze. One of them leaps over the railing, launches himself at John Candy, and levels him with a punch. And the crowd descends into a riotous chaos. And the message is, if you want to start a riot, strike an idol. Like Canadian love for its own beer. Only one or two Canadians is getting this at the moment, and that's okay. <laughs> The Canadian bacon story is funny, but the lesson itself is true. To start a riot, you have to find some culturally sacred thing and threat it, like Ephesian economics, or Canadian sovereignty, or American civic religion, or English football, or Scottish independence. To start a riot, you have to find some place of false human security and then question it, whether it's our wealth, our education, our sense of cultural superiority, our enlightened liberalism. These things give us identity, but they get threatened and we begin to feel nervous. You know, idols are funny things. It's all too easy to think of them as only statues when, in fact, they are always places of false trust. Idols give us a sense of false security. Our money is an idol because it makes us feel secure. Our freedom is an idol, because it mitigates against our radical obedience. Our power is an idol, because it helps us to think that we're better than other people with less power. Our education is an idol, especially in a town like this, because we think well of ourselves. We're number two, after all, aren't we? Idols supply us with a false sense of identity as well. Nationalism tells you who you think you really are. Sexual identity mitigating against the identity God gives you. It's an idol. Whiteness is an idol. And so is blackness, and so is whatever I am. Hispanicness, Hispanicness, I don't know. But it can become an idol in the same way. Idols encourage false worship. We sacrifice to preserve them. They become places we hold out from submission to the gospel, little private kingdoms set apart from the influence of the kingdom of God. They become even worse places we paint with a gospel veneer. We give them gospel flavoring. We justify our excessive wealth. We glorify our sexual license. We prioritize our ethnic identities. We co-opt these things to our nationalist agendas. We make God a servant of our nationalism. It's idolatry. These places of false trust get wrapped up into our identities. And this is the insidious danger of idolatry. Like black, you can even hear black briars in your back garden. The invasive vines that grow under the ground. You have to pull them up and they keep coming back. You pull them up, keep coming back. That's idolatry. It's always growing under the surface. It's part of our environment. We soak it up. Then when they get questioned, we feel threatened. When they're in danger of being overturned, we get defensive. We become angry, and then often as not, we act out as a group. We defend the idol angrily. We shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Make America great again. Make America great again. And when you look at it that way, 25,000 Ephesians chanting in Ephesus start to look a lot like 67,000 Scots singing O Flower of Scotland. Scary stuff. 
So how do we as Christians start riots? Let's say we want to. Let's start a riot, Christians. No, please don't. That happened once. John Knox destroyed the stuff. Let's not destroy anything else today. First, I think we do it in two ways. One, we start riots by existing. Simply by existing, we can start riots. Um, In Acts 19, it isn't a specific teaching that ignites the riot. eh? It's the impact of Christianity changing lives. So people meet Jesus, and then meeting Jesus changes people, and then change people change their choices, and those choices impact society. And it was that actually felt change impacting the economics of Ephesian city life that precipitated the riot there. It wasn't a specific teaching. It was just the existence of Christians in the midst of this evil economic system. And I think, brothers and sisters, that you are called to something similar. Living faithfully as a father will of Christ should make you tacitly annoying to the world. Okay? Not, I did not say living annoyingly should make you annoying. I said living faithfully should make you annoying. That's an important distinction. If you live the Christ life, your very existence will become a threatening reminder of the idolatry built into the world's structures. If you live it deeply, you will threaten its power, its money, its rules, its sense of identity, just by breathing. The best corollary I could come up with this is a bit like the treatment of immigrants by certain nationalist-minded people. An immigrant, especially the immigrant who looks different, cannot help but remind a dominant culture that that person doesn't quite fit in with us. In the simplest sense, the visible difference threatens a sense of identity, of homogeneity, of historical significance. The moment that you joined the kingdom of God, you became essentially an immigrant in this world. The moment you joined the kingdom, you became an immigrant here. You don't fit in as well. This place is not your home. Its rules are no longer your rules. Its economics are not your economics, and radical obedience to that new citizenship ought to make you a little weird, should feel a little uncomfortable. Now, I said one way that we create riots is by existing. The second way is by actually calling out idolatries. Now, there's no specific teaching in the passage we read today, but it's clear that it is the gospel that has started this riot. And while we're always called to live our faith, we're not always called to speak about it all the time. When we are, though, we need to be prepared to get kicked around a little for that. Now, to be fair... The gospel has more than one side, right? So one side of it is, let's, let's pick this, this, this is the gym side. This is the infinite love of God side of the gospel, right? This is the side where God loved the world by sending his son so that we could have life in him. He died for us, and now we get to live in him. This part of the story doesn't start riots, right? It's nice. But there's another side to the story. This is probably the Jeremy side, sorry. Um, This is part where God's kingdom comes to earth by bringing radical disruption to the order of things. It's a disruptive kingdom. Thanks, my wife laughs. That's really helpful. (laughs) This is the spiritual warfare part where we trouble powers and authorities and principalities that are entrenched like black briars in our ground. This is the bringing of justice parts of the kingdom of God where we won't sit quietly while injustice happens around us any longer. This is the condemnation of sin. This is the radical love for other human beings. Our message, like that of Jesus and the apostles, is still this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. King Jesus is here. Repent. But if the world asks, repent from what, you might want to prepare for a riot. Because you're asking for something quite specific. And if you're trying to neglect the fact that you're asking the world to repent from something, well, it's time to pause and think about that maybe. 
So that's lesson one. If you want to start a riot, strike an idol. Go find an idol today. No, don't, don't, please. That's not what I'm saying. Lesson two is this. If you want to fuel a riot, fuel a riot, stoke anger and fear. You want to fuel a riot? Make people angry and make them fearful. We see this in Demetrius' speech, which I've rewritten for you now. Here, Demetrius 2.0. Brothers and friends, this new sect has come, and did you see what they did last week? They caused the burning of millions of pounds worth of religious artifacts. Think of the loss. Think of the wanton destruction. Why? The money could have been used for public projects or to feed the poor. But no, these Christians want to destroy it. And if they are willing to destroy that, they are willing, no doubt, to destroy us as well. Mark my words, fellow silversmiths. Last week, the Christians burned scrolls. Next week, they'll be burning our shops. And then what happens to our businesses, our families, our city, our history, our architecture? It is not just our pocketbooks that are at stake here. It is the soul of Ephesus that is in danger from these Christians. It's a reasonable approximation, I think. Kind of what Demetrius is after. Now, anger and fear are a toxic combination. It is all too easy to feed anger with fear, to flavor fear by anger, and no places of anger are stronger than those tied to the insecurities of our idols. We get angry when we feel threatened, <coughs> when we fear the loss of who we are. When our false securities are called out for the shams they are, that's when we get angry. When we realize that our money isn't good enough, that our nationality isn't good enough, that our blood isn't good enough, these things, if we believe in them, are deeply troubling. So, if you're going to stoke that anger effectively, you've simply got to identify the place of identity, of false security, if you're going to stroke, make the riot happen, and you've got to show how that place is threatened, and then you allow the imagination of your hearers to supply all the details of all that we might suffer if your fears are not addressed. Those immigrants are going to take our jobs. Right? Someone other, and now your imagination can think about, I don't know, what kind of evil immigrants there are. All the evil Americans coming to say that. No, well, yeah. <laughs> if we don't protect our borders, we'll lose our ethnic identity. Right? Or the lovely fear-mongering from about four years ago. If I don't vote for Trump, Hillary will destroy American identity. Let your imagination run rampant with what's going to happen. There's a problem, of course. Anger is an easy emotion, really easy. We are quick to become angry. But it is also one of the most easy emotions to subvert. In other words, when a group and a people become angry, and angry as a group, they stop thinking all that clearly. And I would not hesitate to say that a group anger is a place where spirits other than the spirit of Christ can intervene to subvert the group. If you're angry as a mass, you're in danger of spiritual subversion. It's a time to be extraordinarily careful. Now, I think this is actually one of the crucial differences between the work of Malcolm X and that of Martin Luther King Jr. If you don't know their stories, it's worth looking up. King wanted people to feel their anger, but he wanted them to direct it <clears throat> toward nonviolent action. He didn't tell his followers to be passive. He told them to be actively non-cooperative, to turn their anger into energy that would advance people toward good. It's very powerful. Malcolm X, by contrast, wanted to use his anger differently. He wanted black power and black identity, and he wanted to fight back against the whites who had oppressed him, and he wanted to reinforce black identity by means of anger against whites. So he instrumentalized the anger for the benefit of what he wanted. Now, let me be clear. Black people had a right to be angry. This is not, 
It's not that people didn't, mean, didn't have a right to be angry, but one man wanted the anger to serve hatred, and the other wanted the anger to serve the kingdom of God. Anger is easily subverted. To say this another way, you can sharpen and focus a group's anger by selecting for it an object of its fear. You can identify that object, focus the group's anger, and then you feel more unified by identifying this other person in the middle who could become the object of your anger. The Christians who are going to take away our religious trade, it's a target, an easy target for group anger. The immigrants who are going to take away our jobs. In Nazi Germany, the Jews who are holding us back from cultural advance and ethnic purity. Or perhaps it's the English who want to keep us down. Easy to other people and treat them as objects of anger so that you become unified in your joyful anger. It's dangerous. Anger is powerful. It has a right use and a wrong use. We must remember that it is all too easy to be subverted by outrage into actions that defend our idolatries. Our outrage defends our idolatries sometimes. If you're unreasonably angry about something, there's a good chance there's some idolatry there. Well, that's lesson two. If you want to foment the riot, then get some anger there and some fear, right? Find some objects. Find some enemies. Yeah, that's good. Lesson three is that if you're going to start a riot, prepare to lose control of it. I don't think Demetrius meant to get the crowd of 25,000 together. I'm sure it sounded fun at first, but it also probably became frightening over time. It's also a mixed bag. Some people are there shouting, yay, it's a party for Artemis, and other people are there like, yay, a chance to riot and steal, and you're just not in control. When anger is the unifier, you don't have a baseline that's wholesome. Anger also, like fire, is going to burn till it's out of fuel. And when the fuel is a group of people you have identified, chances are someone is going to get hurt. That target will find a way to make them bleed. And if you think you're in control of the anger, think again. When the anger takes over, it will be the anger of the crowd that controls you. As a cap to this, I want to remind you that Malcolm X was killed after he'd had a change of heart about his anger. Late in life, he had a radical change about what he thought it was for. And when he tried to step away from the anger he'd created, some of his own creatures struck back at him and killed him. His own anger killed him in a way, even though he had stepped away from it. If you're going to start a riot, you've got to prepare to lose control of it. I think a riot, in other words, is like the spiritual possession of a group of people at once, They think they are in control when in reality they have surrendered to a foreign power. And to persist in idolatry gives you over to demonic powers, demonic nationalism, demonic racism, demonic economics, deeply entrenched in who we think we are. Fourth lesson, if you want to address an angry mob, you need to subvert the subverted. So it's wild, it's out of control. If you want to address them, you want to talk to them, you need to now subvert the subverted. Um, In Acts 19, it seems clear that no direct conflict is going to work. No defense from Jews, no defense from Paul on behalf of the Christians. It takes the town clerk who threatens the town with Roman reprisals to get them to calm down. Now to reiterate, at the point when a crowd filled with anger struck the idols full of rage, no longer does it seem like any direct response is going to work. You cannot argue people out of this kind of rage. Nor, um, nor can you reason with them for their good. They become a mob, a kind of forest fire of anger. They see what they want. They act how they want. They blow with the winds of their own rage. And to speak of them, to them now, is to throw pearls before swine and be trampled yourself. This is a danger. The only remaining option, it appears, is to subvert the subverted. 
Now, this is not an assault in their beliefs that stops them. No one comes and says anything about Artemis at this point or the silver trade. Um, it is the realization that their actions may also destroy what they think they're protecting. In other words, fear of the Romans was slightly more than fear of losing the silver trade. It's a good fear to have. You keep this up, the Romans are coming and we're in trouble. You better shut up. And that was sufficient. There's some helpful pastoral points for us at this point. I'm just going to make them very briefly. When you come up against a cultural idolatry deeply entrenched and defended, bound up in the personal identity of the angry person, direct assault is rarely called for. You're, never, you're almost never called to apply the gospel as a blunt hammer to someone's beliefs. This is not the way we do things. Lateral approaches are therefore in order. When Nathan the prophet confronted King David about his adultery and murder, Nathan doesn't take the direct approach. He tells him a story. And at the end of the story, David says, wow, this guy sounds terrible. And Nathan says, guess what? It was you. And he gets to him. And stories are powerful. What else is powerful is friendship. If you've built, built friendships with people instead of building ideologies against them. I think some good friendships would really help the kind of polarized politics we have now. We're not sitting at the pub enough and visiting to figure these things out. There's more I could say, but I'll stop there for now. So we had some lessons. You want to start a riot? Strike an idol, right? You want to stoke the fires? Use some anger and fear. If you're going to go that way, be prepared to lose control. And if you want to stop it, you're going to have to find a way to subvert it. You can't directly stop it. So what do we do with this stuff? I've got two things to say. I'm going to try and say them briefly. One of them is a little more complex than the other. The first thing we do, I want to say, is that we have to learn from the master smasher. Learn from the master smasher. So let's put a passage up on the screen. Let's look at Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, where Jesus tells a parable to a group of Pharisees. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent in a third. Yet this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is an optimistic vineyard owner. Okay. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He asked the crowd. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, the crowd said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests thought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, <laughs> right? He struck an idol, and he almost started a riot, but they feared the people. Now, Jesus teaches this parable to the vineyard owner. Clearly, it has to do with Israel's relationship with, his, with its God. I'm coming for fruit. You're not giving me fruit. You're going to be kicked out. They're recognizing the target is like the big red target on the scribe and Pharisee hearts, and they're kind of like, hey, that's me, man, and, um, and they get upset. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. Would you go back to verse, I think it's verse 15, when he does this for me, please. Um, not 15, 16, right? So tell me why it is written. He quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Next page, right? 
Um, everyone that falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls, it will crush him. All right, what is going on here? Cornerstone, of course, is in architecture, is the beginning stone of a building project. Okay? It's not a capstone like in, a, like in an arch. It's the starting point from which the rest of the building takes its guiding purpose. Everything is built according to the pattern of that cornerstone. And this is the thing that's coming. And you've got two options. Do you like these options? Did you look carefully what the two options were? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. But everyone on whom it falls will be scattered like dust. It doesn't look like anybody makes it out of this. It looks like the stone pretty much wrecks everybody it comes into contact with. And I think that's significant. What will be your relationship to this kind of cornerstone? There's more. This word scattered like dust happens in one other place. I'm going to tie this together for you in a second. So hold on tight. Keep your thinking caps handy. Let's look briefly at Daniel 2, 31 to 35. And here we get a story about an idol that gets smashed by a stone. You saw, Daniel says, O king, and behold, a great image, image mighty of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head was fine gold, the chest and arms silver, middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That business of this idol being scattered away is the same word that Jesus uses in his parable. In other words, the word of God, like a stone not cut by human hands, is coming to smash the idolatries of the earth. Our power, our wealth, our sense of identity, the things that we worship, it's coming. And guess what? You've got two options. Either you throw yourself on the stone, you get broken to be remade by Jesus, or the stone lands on you and you're done. That's it. There's no middle way. Nobody gets out of it okay. Nobody gets to say, oh, look, the stone of stumbling. I won't stumble. Ah. You're stuffed. The question is, what response will you make in your heart when you approach this stone? That seems to be it. So we got to learn from the master smasher, which is, he's the one who does the smashing, not me. It's not my job to smash you. It's my, just my job to introduce you to Jesus and let him make a wreck of you. Okay? <laughs> and you know what? Everybody here needs to get wrecked. Right? If you're all little Lego pieces, you've made a mistake somewhere. And he's got to wreck the whole thing to re reset some of those pieces on the inside. And some of you have come to love the pieces that are broken. You cherish them. They're special and sacred. But I love that mistake. Oh, it's mine. Let me keep it, Jesus. Nope. It's not our job to go out attempting to smash idols of the world, hunting them down, sleuthing them out, so that we can have amazing aha moments with our opponents. Got you in your idolatry. Our job is to hurdle ourselves onto the only true stone, to be remade in his image after the blueprint of his pattern, to be repurposed for his kingdom so that he can continue the work of idol smashing that he does so well. So number one was listen to the master smasher. Number two, much more hopeful, is that I want to encourage you to praise in order to get your eyes off yourself. Idolatry is deeply a thing of the heart, and the direct attack is not going to work very often. The best lateral attack to personal idolatry is going to be your personal praise life. 
your life of worshiping the Almighty God. Praise God to challenge your false securities and build on solid rock. Praise God to challenge your false identity and get new ones in the process. And give praise to God to write the false worship of the world, which amazingly was the song we sang before I came up to speak this morning, wasn't it? So, I set the wedge. If it's my work, may the Spirit flick it out, right? Guess what happens? If it's Jesus' Jesus's rock and it's my wedge, guess what happens to my rock? It gets shattered. Great. I welcome it. But if I've partnered with him and the Spirit comes, let him do his part. So, Alistair, come. I think what I'd like to invite you to do this morning um, as we prepare, there's going to be a time of prayer. All right, like I just said, and let me make this doubly clear, um, I want you to meet Jesus. I don't want you to meet me. I want you to meet him. I don't want you to meet my words. I want, I want him to be the force of change in St. Andrews and in, in the world. So what we do is we have a time where you can come forward and get prayed for to have some meet Jesus moments, and I want to invite you to have those moments. And I want to invite you to experience uh, the loving prayers of our trained home group members who will come up and lay hands on you and pray for you and speak the word of God to you that you might hear it. But I also want to invite you, while Alistair sings in a minute, to praise sincerely and see what the Spirit's going to do in your heart. Would you stand? I'll pray for you and we'll worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the master smasher, and I thank you that you're building a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be disturbed, that cannot be defeated. I thank you that you expose the world's idolatries, you expose our idolatries. I pray that we can surrender to that work of your spirit. You said also, Lord, that um, it's your Holy Spirit that convicts people of sin. May we retreat from any effort to convict people, although our job is sometimes to identify, not to convict. Do your part. And I ask for a fresh outpouring of your spirit here. I ask for everyone here to be touched by you, Lord, to experience you, to know your goodness, to know both sides of the gospel coin, the infinite love of the Father, and the desire for radical change in the earth. These things I pray for Kingdom Vineyard. Amen.